Today's episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible offers a selection of thousands of audiobooks across every genre. As a new member, you can get a 30-day trial subscription free, and you can download and keep one free audiobook. And if you sign up using my special code, audibletrial.com slash unksoldierspod, you will contribute $15 towards this podcast. My very relevant recommendation today is Black Hearts, One Platoon's Descent into Madness in Iraq's Triangle of Death. This very important book discusses a 2006 American war crime in Iraq. And while it is not a fun listen, it's an important listen, one that I personally could not stop listening to. Black Hearts is virtually required reading for most officers and senior enlisted in the U.S. Army, which shows how far we've come as a service since the Philippine War. And it is free for a first-time listener. So once again, that is audibletrial.com slash unksoldierspod. On with the show. The year, 1901. The place, the Philippines. The Philippine War ends not with a parade, but a descent into darkness. A torture scandal and war crimes trials bring the truth home to the American people. Can the United States face reality, or will they look away? I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and this is episode 40, The Philippine War Part 4, A Howling Wilderness. Today we are going to end the story of the Philippine War, and it's not going to be a clean, pretty ending. But I think you guys knew that already. There's going to be some heavy stuff today. Go back and listen to the Emu War after this if you need to, or watch Bob's Burgers or The Simpsons or something. You might need a palate cleanser. So it's been a few weeks since the last episode, and I do apologize for that. That was the result of me moving from Georgia to Wisconsin, and moving, as I'm sure you all know, is something that sucks up a lot of your attention and time. So again, I apologize for the delay, but I'm back now, and that means it's time for a quick recap. Previously, on the Unknown Soldiers podcast. After its blowout victory in the Spanish-American War of 1898, the United States inherited most of Spain's overseas empire, including the faraway Philippine Islands. America had officially come onto the stage as a world power, but the Filipinos had not been consulted about their fun new role in that empire. A standoff around Manila was broken on February 4, 1899, when a small incident blossomed into a general engagement. The Philippine-American War had begun. The United States was going to bring civilization and democracy to the Philippines, whether they wanted it or not. The first phase of the war was the conventional phase, where American and Filipino forces engaged in stand-up battles in the traditional style. The United States dominated this phase of the conflict, winning almost every engagement through superior firepower, organization, and morale. The Filipinos fought bravely, but by late 1899, they were overwhelmed. The Filipino president, Emilio Aguinaldo, fled into the mountains, but not before proclaiming the beginning of guerrilla warfare. The second phase of the Philippine-American War was the guerrilla phase. U.S. forces occupied the Philippine Islands, trying to root out the Filipino insurgents in a diverse, fractured archipelago with all kinds of issues. The Filipino insurgents seemed to be gaining ground at first, but an effective counterinsurgency strategy, internal weaknesses, and Republican victory in the election of 1900 sealed their fate. Aguinaldo was captured in March 1901, even as the insurgency was already collapsing. 
By the time General Arthur MacArthur handed over his command to General Adna Chaffee in July 1901, the last remaining guerrilla strongholds were the province of Batangas and the island of Samar. Only two months later, President William McKinley was assassinated by an anarchist, and his vice president, Theodore Roosevelt, ascended to the White House. Just in time for some horrible news from a place called Balanquiga on Samar, which is where we will pick up today. So that covers Philippine War Parts 1 through 3, and of course I had the short rounds about the U.S. military, the Buffalo Soldiers, and the women of the Philippine War. So if you've missed something, I recommend you go check those out. If not, let's finish it. The court-martial records demonstrate this is not just history, but military history, so there's some dark and bloody stuff going on. Really dark today. Podcast is PG-13. Language is mostly clean. One more nasty word in here today. Content is not, not, not. All my sources, including very useful maps, are on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com, so if you want it, that's where. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. Everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. He found him in a desert land, and in the waste, howling wilderness. He led him about, he instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. Deuteronomy 32.10 Americans have always believed that we are special. The shining city on the hill, spreading light to the world, a beacon of hope for the oppressed peoples of the earth, the world's great example of freedom and liberty and self-government and moral truth. We believe in this image so strongly it can justify some horrific acts. The road to hell, after all, is paved with good intentions. But Americans don't want to acknowledge the darker sides of our past. We don't want to hear about it. The colonization of the West becomes Little House on the Prairie. Slavery becomes Gone with the Wind. But what happens when there's something we can't ignore, we can't glorify, something so shocking there's no way to hide it? In 1902, even as the Philippine War was mostly over, the American public confronted the ugly truth of the conflict. And when that happened, Americans faced the mirror test. Scientists use the mirror test to determine whether an animal has the ability to recognize itself, whether it's cognizant of its own appearance, by testing whether it can recognize changes in the appearance. Scientists place some kind of mark on the animal's face, then see if the animal touches or examines the mark, see if they recognize the difference between their self-image and the reality. But the mirror test is also used on humans. When someone suffers facial trauma from, say, a car accident or an IED, and they require reconstructive surgery, part of the recovery process is to undergo a mirror test, the first time you look at yourself after a scarring event, to see if you can accept the new reality, mentally. Will you come to grips with the fact that this is who you are now, or will you look away? When America learned the truth about the Philippine War, the people of the United States would face something like a mirror test. Would Teddy Roosevelt and his fellow Americans finally confront the dark reality beneath the glorious image of the war? And what if they didn't? Because when you fail the mirror test, when you cling to the image and defiance of reality, the reality's still there. The Philippine War would affect America, whether they admitted it or not. Because the violence of the war doesn't stay overseas. It comes home, it comes back, and reverberates throughout a society. I'm going to give you a phrase, a phrase I will bring back later in this episode. That which your government does unto others, it can also do unto you. I started this series with three questions. Why did America get into the Philippine War? Why did we win? And why did we forget? 
I believe I've answered the first two. I more or less wrapped up the analytical military history side of this series in part three, which is why the end of that episode felt more like the summaries I usually do at the end of a series. I did that because I wanted this episode to focus less on why we won, but what we lost along the way. Today, we will finish the story of the Philippine-American War. We will witness the final campaigns of the insurgency in Batangas and on Samar, and see these campaigns spiral into a confrontation with the reality of empire. We will witness the Moro War, the struggle with the Muslims of the southern Philippines, and see how the Philippines transition from imperial possession to independent republic. We will discover how this war is remembered, or how it isn't. And today, I will tell you why it matters. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. And because this is a long, ambiguous end to a long, ambiguous war, there will be breaks. These are your chance to pause, order takeout, take the kids to Dave and Buster's, do the thing you need to do. So raise your right hand, solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God. Okay, Marine, explain to the committee exactly what happened in the dark jungles of Samar. Do the words howling wilderness mean anything to you? Let's finish the campaign. It was September 2013. I was a young U.S. Army soldier at my first duty station, Company C-29 Infantry, at Camp Casey in South Korea. We were getting ready for PT that morning, just, you know, doing whatever, when the battalion sergeant major came over to chat with us. He told us about an event that happened to our company 112 years ago, in a long-forgotten war, at a place called Balanquica. This is the event that sparked my interest in the Philippine War how my first unit, C Company 9th Infantry, was massacred. In September 1901, the Philippine War was all but over. U.S. Civilian Governor William Howard Taft and Army Commander General Adna Chaffee had only two trouble spots on their radar, two areas where the insurgency still survived. These were Batangas Province in southern Luzon and the island of Samar. Samar is the third largest island in the Philippines. It had been on the back burner for most of the war, it just wasn't a priority. But Samar boasted one of the most dedicated and ferocious Filipino guerrilla organizations, led by General Vicente Lucban. Six months after Aguinaldo's capture, Lucban was still undefeated and America had suffered multiple setbacks on the island. But with the rest of the insurgency crushed, troops were finally available to deal with Samar. Some of these troops were Company C of the 9th Infantry Regiment, recently arrived from a tour of duty in China fighting the Boxer Rebellion. They were stationed at the ramshackle fishing town of Balanquiga on Samar's southern coast. Balanquiga was a very small, very poor village of Nipah huts. The most expensive things in it were probably the brass bells of its stone Catholic church. Company C's commander, Captain Thomas W. Connell, was having a rough time. His men had gotten into altercations with the locals, and one of his soldiers had apparently tried to molest a Filipina girl. The locals chafed under stringent American policies and clearly resented their occupiers. Gee, wonder why. 
And they were acting kind of funny lately. The local priest had vanished. Lots of weird looks, women wearing veils when they didn't wear veils before, comings and goings from the church late at night. One night, Filipina women were carrying a number of small caskets into the local church. When the sentries looked inside, they saw children in the casket. You know, oh, that's a children's funeral, and they averted their eyes. In reality, the veiled women were local insurgents. The children were still alive, plain dead, and beneath their bodies lay dozens of bolos. It was September 28, 1901, 6.30 a.m. C Company of the 9th Infantry was gathering for breakfast in the mess tent, eating, shaving, reading their mail. They discussed the assassination of President McKinley, which they had only learned about the previous night. Only a few men were armed as per standard practice. Most of the rifles were stacked in the barracks under guard. Just another boring day in the Philippines. Then, out of nowhere, the bells of Balangiga began to ring, the brass bells in the church. And simultaneously, literal hundreds of Filipinos swarmed out of the church and the huts, bolos in hand. The attack was so sudden that most soldiers had no time to react. Corporal Ernest Manier heard a commotion and turned to a comrade to ask what was going on. He could not answer as he was split through the head obliquely towards the left shoulder with a bolo. And the bells of Balangiga rang. The village became an instant slaughterhouse. The Filipinos surrounded Americans three or four at a time, hacking them to bits, blood pooling in the men's breakfast amongst the eggs and hash. Captain Connell was cut to ribbons in the village square. Hand-to-hand fighting ensued, as Americans fought back with anything they could find, grappling for revolvers, bolos, blunt weapons, even throwing food and dishes at their assailants. Several Americans tried to climb a ladder into one hut, but it collapsed under their combined weight, and their screams filled the air as the Filipinos sliced them apart, and the bells of Balangiga rang. One soldier remembered later, The dead and dying lay all around. Private J.J. Driscoll was crawling on his hands and feet like a stabbed pig, his brains falling out through a wound he had received. My ears were filled with the pitiful cries of our wounded and dying, pleading for help. I saw Sergeant Martin seated at the table, leaning forward with the spoon clutch in his hand, and his head cut completely off. And the bells of Balangiga rang. By 7.30 a.m., 26 survivors had managed to retrieve their rifles and retreat to the beach. They secured some boats and set out for the open sea, rowing for their lives, as the Filipinos shot at them from the village and chased them in canoes. The Americans escaped, spending several days lost at sea before they finally made it to a local outpost. 48 of C Company's soldiers died in the Balangiga ambush, America's bloodiest day of the Philippine War. The local commander sent an American gunboat to Balangiga for retaliation. They found the town deserted, the dead Americans laying all around, buzzing with flies. Some of them were supposedly mutilated, but that fact does remain disputed to this day. The Americans utterly destroyed Balangiga, so thoroughly that the original site of the town remains abandoned today. And they confiscated the Balangiga church bells as war trophies. What happened is either called the Battle of Balangiga or the Balangiga Massacre. Battle implies a fair fight, while massacre implies something criminal or underhanded. From the Filipino perspective, Balangiga was a remarkably well-planned ambush, a skillful military operation, a battle. From the American perspective, it was an act of barbarity and treachery. 
and no other event of the Philippine War staggered the American public like Balangiga. The war was supposed to be winding down, and now this had happened, the worst event of the war so far. The newspapers called it America's biggest defeat since Custer's last stand, a despicable slaughter, a horrifying atrocity, an act of terrorism that demanded an answer. The American people called for vengeance. Two weeks onto the job, President Theodore Roosevelt was under pressure to act. He sent a message to General Chaffee, ordering him to implement, In no unmistakable terms, the most stern measures to pacify Samar. And General Chaffee had just the man to do it. He had Hell Roar and Jake. Brigadier General Jacob H. Smith, Hell Roar and Jake to his soldiers, already had a really sketchy reputation. He was a Civil War veteran who had fought at the Battle of Shiloh, and he had played an active role in the Wounded Knee Incident of 1890, which, again, the Army had called a battle and the Lakota Sioux had called a massacre. And to be honest, it was a massacre. Smith had been court-martialed twice for mismanaging money, he flew into uncontrolled rages all the time, and he had been reprimanded for his unusually violent behavior against Filipinos, raising the question, how bad do you have to be in this war for other Americans to think you're too extreme? And Chaffee assigned Hellroar and Jake Smith to pacify Samar. Among Smith's units was a Marine battalion under Major Littleton Waller, a tough, hard-drinking Virginian. Waller was a brilliant officer, one of the Marine Corps' rising stars, seen as a likely future commandant. He was already semi-legendary for leading the Marines in the Boxer Rebellion. But when Waller met with General Smith, even he was stunned by the orders he received. Smith said, I want no prisoners. I wish you to kill and burn. The more you kill and burn, the better it will please me. I want all persons killed who are capable of bearing arms in actual hostilities against the United States. Waller was shocked to see, he asked like, what, what's the age limit? Smith replied, 10 years. Waller asked again just to be sure and Smith was like, yes, I said kill everyone over 10. Did I freaking stutter? When Smith and Waller visited the site of the massacre at Balankiga, and they saw that hogs had dug up the American corpses and started eating them, Hellroar and Jake went into a screaming frenzy. He yelled at his subordinates over and over, Kill and burn! Kill and burn! Finally, Smith gave his subordinates a verbal order, a phrase he would repeat throughout the campaign. The interior of Samar must be made a howling wilderness. And it was. For the next five months, Smith's men killed and burned. Columns crisscrossed the island, laying waste to fields and villages, slaughtering animals, burning huts, and killing indiscriminately. The island was cut off from outside food sources, and villagers herded into protective zones along the coast. Gunboats sprayed villages with fire. The dark forests and valleys of Samar blazed with infernos and flashed with rifle shots as American forces ravaged their way across the island. Many of them didn't follow those orders to the letter. They were not trying to commit genocide, but some of them took General Smith at his word and did exactly that. While plenty of Filipinos died by the gun, many more died from starvation or disease or flame. Harried from their homes by fire, their crops destroyed, men, women, and children starved to death in the mountains isolated and suffering in the howling wilderness. 
and Smith had help from another dubious hero of the Philippine War, Major Edwin F. Glenn, the water cure enthusiast whose intelligence activities had uprooted the insurgency on Pane, arrived to conduct his usual sadistic work on Samar. Between October 1901 and January 1902, Glenn, Glenn traveled across Samar and nearby Leyte, torturing Filipinos and overseeing the cold-blooded murder of at least 10 detainees. Some of the Americans tracked down the fugitive Filipino priest from Valenquica, and of course, he had to have known something about the massacre. So Major Glenn delegated one of his young protégés to oversee the interrogation. This was First Lieutenant Julian Galjeau, a recent graduate of VPI, now Virginia Tech, my alma mater. His brother Antoine, the young corporal who tried to cross the river at San Mateo, back in Part 2, is the first name on Virginia Tech's cenotaph, which commemorates the seven Medal of Honor recipients from the school. Julian's name is the second. He would later earn the Medal of Honor for actions on the Mexican border. But in 1901, Lieutenant Galjeau oversaw the water cure torture of a Filipino priest in a dark Nipa hut on Samar. Another American hero blackened his name on the nearby island of Bohol. Captain Andrew Rowan is famous as the hero of A Message to Garcia, a popular just-so story still read by members of the U.S. military today. The essay praised his initiative and can-do spirit. But on Bohol, Rowan's can-do spirit resulted in murder. When one of his soldiers raped a Filipina girl and was then killed by her boyfriend, Rowan ordered the boyfriend's town and the victim's town both destroyed and the boyfriend executed on the spot along with five innocent Filipinos. Rowan would later be court-martialed. Smith's campaign transformed Samar into a blackened ruin, the howling wilderness he promised. Villages lay abandoned, dead men and women littering the jungle paths. Starvation gripped the island, including the so-called protected zones, where civilians suffered terribly from cholera and other epidemic diseases. Compared to lots of units, Major Waller's Marine Battalion was relatively restrained. Waller informed his subordinates that they did not make war on women and children, and he refused to implement General Smith's most egregious orders. But he did lead his Marines on many spirited raids, where they burned villages and crops and killed livestock. In one celebrated attack on November 16, 1901, they captured one of Vicente Lukban's main fortresses at Sohotan. But then Waller planned a march across the entire island of Samar. His rationale for this is not quite clear, and the route he chose was through an unmapped area where food would be scarce and the going would be slow. The iron hand of logistics would be very unforgiving up there. But Waller ignored the warnings from local army officers and made the plunge. On December 28, 1901, Major Waller led 56 Marines, 33 native carriers, and two Filipino scouts into the howling wilderness of Samar. It was a miniature disaster. Waller was essentially trying to do a Kokoda track campaign without the track. The terrain and weather were much worse than anticipated, and soon Waller's expedition was some stranded and starving in the midst of heavy downpours. Out of desperation, the column split up, with some elements requiring rescue parties to be sent back from the coast. Some of the survivors were found nearly naked, sick, yellowed, almost insane, having survived by catching dogs and eating them raw. Eleven marines from Waller's expedition died from starvation or exhaustion. The survivors, including Waller himself, were on the verge of collapse. Waller's march across Samar was a fiasco. 
but the aftermath was even worse. Bedridden with disease, Waller learned that his Marines suspected their Filipino carriers of sabotage, and one of the carriers had even attacked a Marine. Furious and delirious with fever, and probably guilty over the deaths of his Marines, Waller ordered 11 of the carriers summarily executed. It was this act that would eventually lead to the unraveling of America's glorious image of the Philippine War. The march across Samar was a Marine legend in its day. For years afterwards, the Marine Corps paid tribute to the courage and fortitude of the 45 survivors. Whenever one of them entered the room, the other Marines would rise with the words, Stand, gentlemen. He was on Samar. But the march across Samar is almost forgotten today, even by the Marine Corps. And there's a reason for that. General Smith's campaign wasn't just a massive war crime, a total violation of American military law, the largest American atrocity of the Philippine War, it didn't just kill thousands of Filipinos, possibly as many as 50,000, about a fifth of Samar's population. It also worked. The starvation and burning did what random slaughter didn't. On February 18th, Vicente Lukban came staggering out of the blackened jungle, sick, starving, and ready to surrender. By April, the last guerrillas had capitulated. General Smith had accomplished his mission. The insurgency was crushed. Samar was pacified. The final insurgent stronghold was Batangas province in southern Luzon. Its resistance was led by one of the most skillful guerrilla leaders, Aguinaldo's last general, Miguel Malvar. Malvar's guerrillas were so thoroughly embedded into the population that multiple American commanders failed to uproot them, like several generals passed through here and none of them can defeat Malvar. Nothing worked. Just as Mao Zedong would later describe, the guerrillas swam among the people like the fish in the sea. So General Chaffee sent the U.S. Army's rising star, its premier counterinsurgency expert, to fight the last campaign of the Philippine War. J. Franklin Bell was the youngest brigadier general in the Army at 45 years old, with a superb combat record during both the conventional and insurgency phases of the Philippine War. Bell was probably America's best general of the war, brave, creative, energetic, and utterly ruthless. And now he was assigned to Batangas province to crush the final holdouts of the Philippine insurgency. Bell assumed command in November 1901 and quickly formulated a strategy. Unlike Jake Smith's lunatic rampage, Bell would operate within General Order 100. But he had found a loophole. GO 100 said the army was obligated to protect the population, so Bell decided that in order to do this, he would concentrate the people away from the insurgents, and he would concentrate them in camps. Not concentration camps, no, no, uh, protected zones. Yeah, that sounds better. Bell decided that if the gorillas swam through the people as the fish swam in the sea, the solution was to drain the sea. General Bell gave every resident of Batangas 20 days to relocate into the protected zones. After that, literally everything outside the zones was considered enemy territory, to be systematically destroyed with anyone called outside the zones to be shot on sight. Bell's plan was to turn Batangas into a silent wilderness. There wouldn't even be howling. Bell's campaign in Batangas differed from Smith's on Samar in two major ways. First, Smith was a raving lunatic. Bell, on the other hand, was extremely competent and efficient. Every bit of his cruelty served a distinct purpose. Second, 
Smith was operating way outside the bounds of American law of Geo 100, but everything J. Franklin Bell did in Batangas was within the letter of the law. But that didn't mean it wasn't one of the most brutal campaigns the U.S. Army has ever waged. And if you'll notice, this sounds very similar to what Spanish General Valeriano Weyler, the Butcher, had done to defeat the Cuban guerrillas, which earned him the wrath of the American press. And guys, it was basically the same thing. Four years after they had declared Whaler a monster for using the Reconcentrado system in his counterinsurgency campaign, America was imitating him, a fact the press would point out later. Bell's soldiers forced 300,000 civilians into the concentration camps. Then they proceeded to kill the animals, burn the crops, destroy the villages, turn Batangas into a smoking ruin. Bell took the families of insurgent leaders hostage. He tried any adult male captured outside the protected zone for violating the laws of war. He inserted agents into the concentration camps to look for spies and root out insurgent leaders. And his mobile columns plowed the burnt-out wreckage of the province, pursuing Malvar's guerrillas across the hills. The camps were a humanitarian catastrophe. Separated from their animals and fields, and with the army failing to deliver enough food, the citizens of Batangas were starving. Concentrated in a small area with no sanitation or hygiene, disease was rampant. Bell's campaign in Batangas co coincided with a massive cholera epidemic, and another disease was decimating the carabao, or water buffalo, the Filipinos' main work animal. The Americans weren't to blame for the original existence of the diseases, but they were responsible for the camps and the war that made them much worse. The last year of the Philippine War was at its most apocalyptic, as disease ravaged the islands, as the flames of Batangas and Samar baked the sky red and sent columns of smoke to scorch the blue, as the disruption of food and the burning of villages over the last two years left hundreds of thousands homeless, hungry, and wandering the dirt roads begging for food. There were even swarms of locusts that devoured what little food remained. Some witnesses reported like flocks of vampire bats just hovering, waiting for the corpses to fall. The disruption of the economy by six years of warfare and revolution reduced many regions to famine conditions. The death toll mounted. And General Bell was unrelenting. Starting in January 1902, he lined up his soldiers and sent them across the province like a rolling wave of destruction, a 10-mile cordon that systematically killed every carabao and horse and deer and dog, burned every field, leveled every building in their path. The soldiers kept careful records of all of this. One regiment reported a single patrol where they burned more than 500 tons of rice and corn, killed 200 carabao, 800 cattle, 680 horses, and burned more than 6,000 houses. And this was one sweep. As they destroyed all this food, all these supplies, the women and children of Batangas were starving to death behind them. This wasn't pointless. It was the point. And it worked. The guerrilla resistance collapsed. Some local insurgents killed their own officers and surrendered. Others abandoned their units and fled into neighboring provinces. Malvar remained defiant, continuing the war he had led for over two years until he learned that his wife, one of Bell's hostages, was deathly ill. After receiving promises of fair treatment, Malvar formally surrendered on April 16, 1902. J. Franklin Bell had defeated the final Filipino insurgency, and everything he had done was 100% legal under GO-100. All of this was legal. But at least 11,000 Batangas civilians perished in his camps, 
including many women and children, and that is a low number. Their starving bodies, rib cages poking through their skin, were buried in shallowed graves throughout the protected zones. The stench of carcasses overwhelmed the camps, and the cries of orphan babies broke the human night. Later analysts praised Bell's campaign as a masterpiece of counterinsurgency warfare, like the best campaign waged in the Philippines as far as military objectives were concerned. But in the words of Major Matthew Batson, far from a softy himself, General Bell was the real terror of the Philippines. Batangas was pacified. Malvar had been the last insurgent jefe at large, and his surrender, more than any other event, marks the end of the Philippine-American War. But events were still unfolding back in America. President Theodore Roosevelt faced a crisis. It was finally time for the American people to confront the reality of empire. It was time for America to undergo the mirror test. Throughout this series, I've been switching back and forth between the Philippine War as it played out in the islands, reality, and the Philippine War as perceived by the American people, the image. And as I've made clear, these were two different things. For most of the war, the American people were fed a glorious, sanitized, sepia-toned image. The military and political leaders had worked overtime to make sure Americans got the comic book version of this war. Military censorship kept the news media and war reporters from transmitting too much negative news, and the pro-imperialist press had downplayed any bad news that managed to get through. That guy's lying. That guy's insane. She doesn't know what she's talking about. American soldiers wouldn't do that. The war's going great, and the Filipinos are a bunch of lying, treasonous orientals anyway. You can't believe any of that. But in late 1901, the tide of public opinion began to turn. The news from Samar and Batangas was too raw, too nasty, even just the rumor of it, for pro-imperialist newspapers to ignore. They didn't know exactly what was going on, but the stories were just, just an overwhelming flood of stories. The American people were about to find out the truth. Teddy Roosevelt had already had a very turbulent presidency, even by the standards of the day. In October 1901, only weeks after taking the White House, he invited black activist Booker T. Washington to dine with him at the presidential mansion, making Washington the first black man ever invited to dinner in the White House. This was greeted with a wave of condemnation from the Jim Crow South, who no joke screamed about how allowing one black person into the White House was a declaration of war against white manhood. Roosevelt stood firm, proclaiming the virtues of the African-American leader. Teddy had also declared war on the big corporations, beginning the trend of trust-busting for which he would become legendary as a champion of the common man against big business. All this was extremely admirable. Despite everything I'm about to tell you, I think Teddy still ranks among the great American presidents. But even as Theodore Roosevelt built his very well-deserved legend, a scandal threatened to overwhelm his newborn presidency. The rumors from Batangas, and especially from Samar, had sent the American press into an uproar. The war was more unpopular than ever, even as it was finally coming to an end. 
One of the loudest anti-imperialist voices was Senator George Hoare, a Massachusetts Republican who had been against the war from the get-go. He demanded that the Senate investigate these rumors, and under pressure from the public and from their own party, the Republican majority had no choice but to comply. They agreed to Senate hearings on the conduct of the war. Guys, this was supposed to be a whitewash. The chairman of the committee was Senator Henry Cabot Lodge, Mr. Imperialist himself, and his plan was to only call friendly witnesses, ask them a few questions, say, well, nothing to see here, and be done with it. He and the other imperialists wanted to cover up anything that might look bad on the administration. But it didn't go that way at all. The investigation began on January 26, 1902. The first witness was William Howard Taft, governor of the Philippines, and he messed up. In an offhand comment, he happened to mention something called uh, the water cure. And the senators were like, wait, whoa, hold on, go back. The what? The what cure? And now things were out of control. There had been rumors before, but now an administration official had openly admitted that the water cure was real. The Senate hearings turned out to be the opposite of a whitewash. Nothing about them made America look good. Generals Otis and MacArthur confessed to burnings, execution, the widespread misbehavior of troops under their command. The senators heard story after story from soldiers about the widespread use of torture, including but not limited to the water cure. The shooting of random civilians and the execution of Filipino wounded turned out to be commonplace. One soldier of the 11th Cavalry described how his unit opened fire on a wedding. Another soldier described gunning down a village because they were ordered to take no prisoners. One officer testified about one of General Bell's camps, how 127 women were packed into a single church, how disease was rampant, anyone going past the deadline was shot, the death toll was off the charts. Sergeant Mark Evans openly declared to a cringing Senate that the Filipinos had to be exterminated. And this coincided with a fresh wave of letters from soldiers and their families describing the violence of the war, the enormous loss of civilian life, the miserable experiences of American soldiers, and the nightmares that kept them awake at night. One of the Marines that had survived the march across Samar had committed suicide in his barracks in April. America's image of a glorious, righteous war was disintegrating. They were starting to see the reality, and the reality was ugly. The Roosevelt administration went into damage control mode. Teddy Roosevelt proclaimed that, The accusation that there had been anything resembling systematic or widespread cruelty by our troops was false. It might sound like he was lying, but to be honest, guys, Teddy was never in the habit of lying, even when it was the smart thing to do. He just wasn't that kind of politician. It sounds like he didn't want to believe the truth. He refused to believe it. TR always had a dreamlike, almost childlike image of war as awesome, great fun, a test of courage and manhood and adventure. But how do you square that with this? How do you reconcile the glory of San Juan Hill with the water cure? I said in part one that no one believed in the American image more passionately than Theodore Roosevelt. He seemed to encapsulate the American ideal. But when he was confronted with the reality, he couldn't accept it. He couldn't believe it. He refused to believe that Americans could do this. The much more cynical war secretary, Elihu Root, ran the administration's damage control. Teddy was too naive to do this. 
Root wanted to prove that when atrocities did happen, that they were being punished. Like, hey, no, yeah, sure, okay, but look, we punished them. So he released a list of 39 U.S. soldiers convicted of atrocities, and this backfired. Not only were the stories um really blood-curdlingly terrible, but the punishments were pathetic. For things like torturing or executing Filipino detainees, soldiers had been fined or reprimanded, like slapping the wrist. Naughty, don't do that again. Like, come on, you think this makes you look better? So Root began firing off messages to General Chaffee over in Manila, like, Hey dude, um, some stuff's going down up here in D.C. Checking to make sure your boys are behaving themselves before something else catches us by surprise. Chaffee figured out that Root was looking for a scapegoat, someone to throw under the bus and say, Look, this was the guy responsible for all this mess. There was a scapegoat, it wasn't going to be Adna Chaffee. So he sent a message to Jacob Smith on Samar, asking him, Smith. Have you been having any promiscuous killing on Samar for fun? <laughs> the way he phrased that question, it sounds like he knew exactly what Smith was doing. And Smith was like, psh, have I? But Smith figured that Chaffee was looking for a scapegoat, and it wasn't going to be Jacob H. Smith. So he forwarded Chaffee the reports of Major Littleton Waller, where the Marine Corps officer admitted to executing 12 Filipino carriers for not very good reasons. And Chaffee was like, bingo, we have a patsy. And he's a Marine, even better. Now guys, Waller was not the worst American in the Philippines, by, not by a long shot. They had all dined at the same all-you-can-eat war crimes buffet, and he was better than most. Waller just happened to be a convenient scapegoat. But once again, the attempted cover-up would backfire. The court-martial of Major Littleton Waller began on March 17, 1902. Major Waller openly admitted to ordering the executions of the Filipino porters, but based his defense on General Order 100, as well as the fact that the court technically didn't have authority over him because he was a Marine. Now, Waller was not going to mention General Smith's orders. He was a loyal subordinate. He wasn't going to throw his commander under the bus. That is, until General Smith appeared as a witness saying, No, 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 I told my officers to respect the laws of war. They weren't supposed to go around killing people. You know, lying through his teeth. And Waller's over here in the defendant's stand going, You son of a... Alright, General, you want to play that game? So when Waller gave his testimony, he spilled his guts. I was just following General Smith's orders. Which orders? Oh, you know, kill and burn, kill everyone over ten, howling wilderness, the whole shebang. And the court-martial was like, hold on, General Smith said what? Waller was like, oh yeah, he was very clear, and I have multiple witnesses that can back me up. And they did. So the court-martial, by a vote of 11 to 2, acquitted Littleton Waller of all charges. He eventually got General Stars, though he never did make Commandant, largely because of the stink of Samar. Waller's testimony hit the newspapers like a bombshell in April 1902. Daily headlines included, Extermination of natives in Philippine provinces. Or, Samar to be made a howling wilderness. Or, To kill and burn the more the better, Waller's instructions. The New York Journal's entire first page just said, Kill all. Teddy Roosevelt had been making a tour of the American South. In one speech, he made an offhand comment about the war being almost over, joking that, 
There was far more warfare about the Philippines in this country than there was warfare in the Philippines themselves. Then he came back to Washington and this was all over the headlines. And this coincided with one of the Senate committee's most incendiary witnesses. In part three of this series, I described a certain event on the island of Pane, where Captain Edwin F. Glenn had tortured the mayor of Igbaras, then burned the town to the ground. One of the soldiers in that town had been Sergeant Charles S. Riley of the 26th Infantry, who took the stand in the Senate investigation. Henry Cabot Lodge listened, squirming in his chair, as Sergeant Riley described the scene in gruesome detail. Imperialist Senator Albert Beveridge went on the attack, asking, wasn't this an isolated incident? Well, weren't the Filipinos bad too? Hadn't Filipino terrorists provoked these actions? Why didn't you write any letters home about all the bad things the Filipinos did? You know, trying to find any reason why this might have been justified. But it couldn't be. Nothing could be hidden anymore. Now, finally, the American public understood what had been going on in the Philippines. And the anti-imperialists, understandably, were like, See, we told you. We warned you this whole time. Look at what this has come to. We told you. We told you what fighting a war against our principles would do to us. Look how quickly this war for civilization and progress degenerated into torture and concentration camps. Look at how quickly little brown brothers turned into kill everyone over ten. It only took three years for us to go from benevolent assimilation to a howling wilderness. So guys, here we are. The image is shattered. Reality is undeniable. America faces the mirror test. But who was ultimately responsible for all this? We could blame it on the soldiers, the generals, the politicians, and all of them deserve some part of the blame. But the responsibility for the Philippine War ultimately lies with you. Not you personally, but the American people. The American nation. One second, getting on my soapbox here, excuse me. <clears throat> See, this is what I've built in towards this whole series. The sheer brutality of the war finally coming home to the American people and all the media, all the newspapers, dinner table conversations and barbershop arguments and editorials and letters to the editor and news, all this stuff. The reality finally bursting through the image. And when the Americans of 1902 were shocked and horrified and demoralized and ashamed of the truth, this is when I want to just kind of grab them and say, what did you think was going to happen? You wanted to be a world power. You wanted an empire. You wanted to force your ideas down someone else's throat. You wanted to teach them the right way to live. And when they didn't want those ideas, you got angry. You got tough. You held them down and water cured them with your ideas of democracy and civilization and progress. You said, America is the greatest. Our ways are the best ways, the right ways. And if you won't accept them, there must be something wrong with you. That's what it boiled down to. The arrogance of believing in the American image so much that you will force other, lesser people to accept it too. So what did you think empire looked like, America? How do you think empires are built? Clutching your pearls over torture and burning and murder. But that's what war is. That's what imperialism is. You're upset with how it's done, but that was always going to be how it was done. Yes, we wanted an empire. We didn't want that. What did you think empire was? Do you think the Romans didn't do this? Or worse, the British, the French, the Russians? No empire is built without a descent into the heart of darkness. Oh, but you're special. You're America. 
you can build an empire with kindness and hearts and minds and benevolent assimilation. But you can't. There is no such thing as a nice empire. Every empire has had blood baked into its foundation. To think you can just go impose your ways on another people. Impose Western-style liberal democracy and civilization and our values on another people. And that the process will be clean and pretty and photogenic is horseshit. If you have questions about whether it's right to fight the war this way, the real question is whether it was right to fight the war at all. Remember that analogy I made about the European powers' peer pressure in America into trying just a little empire? Just a little? Now imagine America staring in the mirror, looking at the new scars on its soul, and Britain and France and Russia and Germany all like gathering around like, hey look, America's doing the mirror test. First time? Well, your first conquest is always hard when you realize what you're becoming. Don't worry, it gets easier. You learn to live with it. America faced the mirror test. The reality was out there. The United States could confront what the war had done, how it had distorted and twisted American ideals of freedom and liberty and democracy into something ugly, or it could look away. And I think you already know what happened. The public outrage was brief. America got over its shame pretty quickly. And they did this by lying to themselves. They told themselves that these were just isolated incidents. Most soldiers hadn't done anything like this. There were just a couple of bad eggs who had done the nasty stuff. And as long as we punish them, well, then we're cool. And after that, let's not talk about this anymore. So in the end, only three major figures paid any price for serious war crimes in the Philippines. Brigadier General Jacob H. Smith turned out to be the scapegoat the administration needed, and even the hardcore imperialists criticized him as a monster, a fiend. The court-martial only recommended a reprimand. A reprimand? Yeah, but President Roosevelt ordered Smith's immediate dismissal from the army. Theodore Roosevelt proclaimed Smith's conduct was beyond the pale of the American image. He said, Great as the provocation has been in dealing with foes who habitually resort to treachery, murder, and torture against our men, nothing can justify the use of torture or inhumane conduct of any kind on the part of the American army. Major Edwin F. Glenn and Lieutenant Julian Galjot were tried and convicted by court-martial for their use of the water cure. They were suspended for a few months in order to pay a fine. Both of them would return to duty and have successful careers in later years. Glenn led a division in World War I. Galjot received the Medal of Honor for actions on the Mexican border as a colonel. Among higher officers, Smith, Glenn, and Galjot suffered the only serious consequences for war crimes in the Philippines. If you can call war, you know, forced retirement, suspension, or a few dollars shaved off your paycheck as serious consequence. No one else received any punishment at all. Adna Chaffee and J. Franklin Bell both served as chief of staff of the army, and neither one received so much as a slap on the wrist for the concentration camps of Batangas. Those, after all, were legal. Kill everyone in over 10 and the water cure weren't legal. But General Order 100 and its arbitrary standard, that was the line. Go no farther. Anything you did behind that, no matter how bad it was, it's okay. America had found its scapegoats, and that was enough. But Americans lied to themselves in a broader way. 
even faced with the reality of the war, something that no amount of whitewashing could spin into a positive narrative, Americans set it aside. They stopped talking about it, stopped paying attention to it. No one wanted to hear about the war anymore. There was this curious deafness, this silence, in the aftermath of the courts martial and the war crime scandal. Americans had been disgusted and horrified when it was revealed to them what the reality of the Philippine War was. But when they faced the mirror test, when they had the opportunity to accept the truth of what they had become, they looked away. They refused to accept the reality, so they ignored it, and they forgot it. The atrocities vanished from the headlines, the campaigns disappeared from history books, and the Philippine War was erased from the collective consciousness of the American people. Instead, they focused on the image of the Spanish-American War and its glorious victories, while conveniently forgetting the much longer, much bloodier, much more expensive, much more important war for empire that followed. On July 4th, 1902, President Theodore Roosevelt declared the Philippine insurrection officially over. And this date is often cited as the end of the war, Philippine-American War, February 4th, 1899, with the first shots fired at Manila, to July 4th, 1902, with Roosevelt's declaration. But it didn't feel like a victory. There were no parades, no bands, no fireworks. Americans accepted the end of the war, not with cheers and flag-waving, but apathy and resignation. The war had started gloriously and ended shamefully. No one wanted to know about it. No one wanted to think about it. The Philippine War began with a bang and ended with a shrug of indifference. But, Teddy might have said the war was over, but the fighting in the Philippines wouldn't end for more than a decade. American forces all over the islands continued to fight against lingering resistance to varying levels. There were major campaigns on Leyte and Samar throughout 1905 and 1907, and in southern Luzon in 1905. A sect of the Dios Dios Catholic militants, the Pulajanes, fought on Samar for years. In 1904, they ambushed and killed 37 Philippine scouts at the Dolores River, almost as bad as Balanquiga. General Artimio Ricarte remained at large in Bataan until 1904, and Macario Sake, who claimed to be president of what he called the Tagalog Republic, held out in central Luzon until 1906. Some of the young officers who gained experience in these P.S. postscript battles included Lieutenants George Marshall and Douglas MacArthur, both of whom would lead the U.S. Army during World War II. But none of these skirmishes really challenged American control over the islands. The surrenders of Lukban and Malvar had ended the last serious resistance to American occupation in most of the Philippines. But there was one area of the archipelago that remained unconquered. One region that even the Spanish had never subdued. The final American conquest of the Philippines and the last of its atrocities would be waged against the Muslim peoples of the South, the Moros. These conflicts would be known as the Moro Wars, America's first war against radical Islam.
Historians usually treat the Philippine War and the Moro War as separate conflicts, often called the Philippine Insurrection or the Moro Rebellion that we've been over terminology and stuff. And this is partially true, the Moros were unaffiliated with Emilio Aguinaldo's Philippine Republic, and they see themselves as a separate people from the Filipinos. And the Moro War would last 11 years from 1902 to 1913. This thing was taking off just as the Philippine War was coming to an end. But these were both imperial conflicts fought by the US and the Philippines. They blend together, and together they make a complete story in my opinion. So to me, they're part of the same narrative. Now guys, if I let it, the Moro War could occupy an entire episode. I'm just going to hit the highlights, what I think is the most important. There were two big differences between the Philippine War and the Moro War. First, the Moros were a completely different opponent in every way, including their fighting style, their religion, their values, their way of war. Second, the American people were at least semi-conscious of the Philippine War, but they barely noticed the Moro War at all except for one big incident at a place called Budaho. If the Philippine War is forgotten, the Moro War is downright obliterated from American memory. The Moros inhabited the southwest quarter of the Philippines, most of western Mindanao, and the Sulu Archipelago. They were the Philippine Muslims. And just like with Catholicism, Sunni Islam had blended with local traditions to create something unique to the Philippines. Now, the Moros didn't originally call themselves Moros. The Spanish had spent centuries fighting Muslims from North Africa called Moors, so they slapped that label on any Muslims they ran into during the Age of Exploration. So the Muslims on the, in the Philippines, literally on the other side of the world from North Africa, became Moros, an artificially uniform name imposed on a diverse and factionalized people. If you remember from part two, way back in 1899, America had crafted a peace treaty with the Moros. General John C. Bates signed a treaty with Jamalul Karam II, the Sultan of Sulu. This is called the Karam Bates Treaty. America agreed to respect Moro traditions in exchange for Moro acceptance of uh, nominal American sovereignty. This treaty had kept the Moros pretty quiet throughout the whole Philippine War, but there were issues. First, those Moro traditions include some stuff like, I don't know, slavery, piracy, weird rituals, and Americans weren't cool with that. Second, the Sultan of Sulu was not king of the Moros. The Moros were divided into various clans and subdivisions and sects across the Sulu archipelago and Mindanao. If anything, the Moros remind me of the Scottish Highland clans in a way. There were about a dozen Moro ethnic groups, each led by a war leader called a Datu or a Sultan, and they fought each other all the time. A great way for Americans to get into a pissing match with one Datu was to get friendly with another Datu who happened to be his mortal enemy. And the Moros were very dangerous enemies, with a completely different fighting style from the Filipinos. They fought from stone fortresses called katas, surrounded by obstacles and ditches, making them very hard to assault. The Moros wielded a bizarre mix of medieval and modern weaponry. Americans reported encountering warriors in freaking chainmail or iron helmets, or wearing colorful clothing like bright turbans and decorated vests. Lots of comments about how colorful the Moro clothing was. Their weapons included literal bows and arrows, but also multiple centuries worth of firearms, including cannon dating back to the 1500. So like, 
engine war cannon, but also modern rifles and even a couple of modern artillery pieces. But the famous Mora weapon was the Chris, a wavy-bladed sword originated in Indonesia, and its most famous wielders were the Huramentados. These were suicidal Moro warriors who swore an oath and underwent an elaborate ritual overseen by their imams to follow the path of jihad. Bathed, shaved, and dressed in a white robe and turban, they would launch berserker attacks on their enemies trying to kill as many infidels as possible. Much like Islamic extremists of the 21st century, the Moros fought the infidel believing it guaranteed them a place in paradise. The Spanish referred to these holy warriors as juramentados, those who take an oath. These are your suicide warriors. The juramentados were terrifying, almost unstoppable, especially since they tended to lace up with various kinds of drugs before going on their suicidal death rampage. And the Spanish looked at this and said, you know what, we're going to leave those guys alone. So the Spanish never subdued Moroland. They held on to coastal outposts like Zamboanga and launched occasional raids, but never occupied the interior. As it turned out, these people were really freaking difficult to subdue. And in 1902, it was America's turn. Because even as the last embers of Filipino resistance were dying out in Batangas and Samar, the Moro provinces were breaking out into revolt. On April 13, 1902, General Adna Chaffee ordered an expedition against the Moros of Lake Lanao, high in the interior of the big southern island of Mindanao. This is considered the beginning of the Moro War. So yeah, this conflict is starting literally before the Philippine-American War is allegedly ending. When Teddy Roosevelt declared an end to the Philippine War on July 4, 1902, he included an exception. The war was over, except in the country inhabited by the Moro tribes, to which this proclamation does not apply. And the initial phases of the Moro War would be dominated by a middle-aged army officer who up to this point had led a very undistinguished career, Captain John J. Pershing. If you've heard his name, yeah, Pershing is most famous for leading the American Expeditionary Force to France in World War I. The American World War I general, one of the two highest ranking generals in U.S. Army history after George Washington. George Marshall, Eisenhower, Bradley, Patton, this is their mentor. Pershing was nicknamed Black Jack for his service leading the Buffalo Soldiers of the 10th Cavalry, including at the Battle of San Juan Hill. Now, there is a popular Moro War myth about Pershing. In 2017, President Donald Trump told a story about Pershing executing Muslim insurgents with bullets dipped in pig's blood, like psychological warfare to deny their souls paradise using Muslim religion against them. And guys, this is a made-up story. Pershing did not do this. He mentioned the rumor of it happening, something like this, in his memoirs, but there is no indication that he witnessed it or conducted it personally. If anything, this would be out of character for Pershing, since he, more than any other American officer, was willing to respect Moro traditions and work with them, rather than see them all as wicked savages. Pershing functioned as the army's main cultural liaison on Mindanao, starting from like 1900, and Pershing was so effective at diplomacy with the Datus that he had a reputation as basically the Moro Whisperer. He did all sorts of crazy things like having conferences with the Datus, learning their languages, engaging in cultural dialogue, all that weird stuff. He even walked into the jungle and met with them alone and unarmed as a way of gaining their trust. Pershing said, 
we don't have to fight these guys. We can work with them as long as we respect their culture and traditions. Pershing's careful diplomacy ensured friendly relations with many of the local Datus. By 1902, he was in charge of the army's forces in the Lake Lanao sector, a very high responsibility for a mere captain. He replaced a colonel in this position, which is three ranks higher. But some Moro leaders resisted Pershing's diplomacy, and this required force. Throughout late 1902 and early 1903, Pershing led multiple expeditions against Moro Katas around Lake Lanao. Resistance was always fierce, these were never easy battles. Attacking the fortresses was a nasty, difficult job. Soldiers had to cross obstacles and ditches under constant fire from the walls and scale the stone ramparts with ladders and ropes. The fighting was hand-to-hand, -hand, with American soldiers wielding bayonets and rifle butts against Chris wielding moros and chainmail and helmets. Imagine how wild this combat must have looked. U.S. soldiers in khaki uniforms and campaign hats with Krag Jorgensen rifles basically attacking a medieval castle. Unlike the Filipinos, the Moros defended their castles to the bitter end, often dying en masse rather than surrendering. Combat in the Moro provinces had an entirely different character from the rest of the Philippines. This resistance was always so fierce and so determined that people like Pershing would always try to any other option rather than fighting. That was the best way to do things. Two of the young officers fighting under Pershing were Hugh A. Drum, future general and namesake of Fort Drum, and Robert Lee Bullard, future commander of the 1st Infantry Division in World War I. Both of them remembered the inadequacy of the U.S. Army's 38 caliber revolver against a Hurtamentado warrior. Bullard remembered one incident where a Hurtamentado attacked his squad and beheaded two Americans with his Chris before either of them could react. Even as the Moro was on top of his second victim, Bullard fired his revolver four times point-blank into the attacker to no effect. Only by literally pressing the barrel against the Moro's head and pulling the trigger could Bullard end the assault. The U.S. Army was searching for a new service pistol to replace its vintage revolvers. It's the 20th century, we need to step up. And the experience of the Moro War convinced the Army Ordnance Board that they needed a large caliber pistol with significant stopping power to take down a suicidal, drugged-up Hurtamentado. The result was the legendary M1911 Colt 45 semi-automatic pistol. In my opinion, humble opinion, one of the greatest handguns ever designed. This pistol would serve the U.S. Army well into the Vietnam War and even beyond. It fires a big honking round, big enough to stop almost anything, even a Moro jihadist. Side note, I mentioned in the intro to this series that the anecdote about the Colt 45 is one of the only things most Americans know about the Philippine War. Well, I got a story for you. Literally a few months ago, I was trans I was leaving Fort Stewart head up to Wisconsin and I was talking to some fellow soldiers about how I was going to do a series on the Philippine War. One young woman, an Army E-5 sergeant, like she like perked up and said, oh yeah, that was when the Army designed a new pistol to kill us better. Like I said, that's the only bit of trivia lots of people know. But what really struck me is that she said, kill us better. She was a Filipino. She told me that her parents had immigrated from the Philippines. Her family were Moros from Mindanao. She was a practicing Muslim, wearing a U.S. Army uniform. The Moros didn't forget the Moro War, even if Americans did. Okay, back to the war. 
The fighting around Lake Lanao was pretty tough, but when Pershing brought artillery to bear on the Kata's, like he hauled mountain artillery up into the hills, they fell pretty quickly. Pershing mixed force with diplomacy, offering lenient terms to any Datus who surrendered and letting Moro warriors escape some, some of the fights in the hope they would convince others to lay down their arms. So by May 1903, Pershing had pretty much defeated Moro resistance in the Lake Lanao area. But a new commander was on his way to screw everything up. Another guy you might have heard of, Major General Leonard Wood. You may or may not be tired of me going, oh look, here's another guy who's important for a bunch of other reasons. I think this is the last one. Leonard Wood began his career as a U.S. Army doctor, but through uh, some very good luck and very good PR, after all, it's who you know, ended up becoming close, have all these close connections with Republican politicians, including close personal friendship with Theodore Roosevelt. They became literal boxing partners, like this guy got paid to try and beat up the president. Wood served alongside Roosevelt in Cuba as Colonel of the Rough Riders. Roosevelt was Lieutenant Colonel, but they figured, hey, we need an actual army person to be the commander of this unit, and Leonard Wood got the job. Now in 1903, Major General Leonard Wood arrived as the new American commander of Moro Province, and he was going to change some stuff. See, Leonard Wood was a diehard progressive Republican, an ideological crusader who really believed in American empire. So when he got to the Philippines, he decided this whole touchy-feely approach was stupid. Wood unilaterally canceled the treaty with the Sultan of Sulu, abolished many of the Datu's traditional privileges, and banned slavery. He also imposed heavy taxes, replaced Sharia law with American civil law, and forced Moro children into American schools. And who could have seen this coming? The Moros rose up in armed revolt. They saw these Christian foreigners coming in and uprooting their entire way of life. The American schools and the banning of Sharia law made it seem like an attack on Islam itself. There were rumors that the Americans were going to abolish Islam in the Philippines, which a couple of Americans did like say they should do, which didn't help. <laughs> and Wood was riling the Moros up on purpose, kinda so he would have an excuse to fight them. He seems to have been a little bit of a glory hound. Maybe he was jealous of Teddy hogging all the glory from Cuba. Wood did not have any real combat experience, which put him on the low rank compared to a lot of other generals in the army, and he wanted some combat experience. Can't have a combat experience without combat. So General Wood's tenure over Moro province lasted from 1903 to 1906, and it witnessed the most intense combat of the war. Wood reacted to any Moro provocation, even little ones, with large expeditions. Kata after Kata was blasted apart by artillery and machine gun fire, as long khaki-coated columns burned their way across the hills. General Wood himself led many of these campaigns, pistol in hand, no one ever accused him of being a coward. Many of these expeditions were completely unnecessary, diplomacy and patience would have been more effective, trying to use Pershing's approach instead. But Wood was determined to drag the Moros kicking and screaming into America's so-called civilization, echoing the language of many later Americans who had to fight against a, a Muslim insurgency. Wood believed that violence was the only language they understood. Leonard Wood's tendency to blow stuff up first and ask questions later would lead to the final great atrocity of the Philippine War. In early 1906, a large group of Moros gathered inside the crater of an extinct volcano on the island of Holo. This was a sacred site known as Budaho. 
The majority of the Moros weren't fighting men, but women and children seeking shelter from the ongoing conflict. Local American officers believed that the Moros on Budaho were peaceful, that diplomacy and some patience and just, we can work on this, we can get them to come down from the mountain and lay down their arms. That was what Pershing would have done. But General Wood decided that the Moro encampment was a threat that needed to be eliminated. He ordered 750 American troops and Philippine scouts, so there are Catholic Philippine troops fighting with the Americans. He ordered them to assault the crater of Budaho on March 5th, 1906. The Battle of Budaho is one of those event, another one of those events that is either a battle or a massacre. This one was a legitimate battle. There was there was shooting on both sides. The American troops, including the Philippine scouts, converged on the crater from multiple directions. They dragged mountain howitzers and machine guns to the lip of the crater, and by March 7th, they were unleashing torrents of fire into the Moro camp. The vast majority of the Moro men were only armed with the Chris and died without ever getting close to the Americans. But they did fight. This was not a one-way battle, leading to a lot of the ambiguity of this event. There were even, apparently, women combatants amongst the Moros, which led again to a lot of, well, yes, some women died, but there were some women warriors. By far, most of the women in this battle were not warriors at all. General Wood ordered the attacks to step up and called naval gunfire onto the crater. The sheer amount of high explosive and machine gun bullets ripped the Budaho crater apart, and everyone in it. After a certain point, Americans just stopped checking their targets, firing indiscriminately into the huts and small fields of the Moro refugees. By March 8th, 1906, the Battle of Budaho was over. It was the bloodiest engagement of the Moro War. 21 Americans had been killed and 70 wounded, but almost 900 Moros lay dead. And very many of the dead, the majority of the dead, were women and children. Guys, there are published photographs of this. You can find them right now with the Google search, Budaho photographs. They look like something out of hell. And in one of these pictures, you can see very clearly a dead Moro woman with a dead Moro child in her lap. Most U.S. Army officers considered Budaho a great victory. One exception was John Pershing, who hadn't been at the battle, but wrote to his wife that, I would not have that on my conscience for the fame of Napoleon. Most of the initial reports of the battle were like, hey, we defeated a huge Moro insurgency. And when President Teddy Roosevelt got these reports of a great American victory, minus all the slaughter of women and children, he was like, cool, awesome, my buddy Leonard's doing some work. So he telegraphed Wood. I congratulate you and the officers and men of your command upon the brilliant feat of arms wherein you and they so well upheld the honor of the American flag. This was an oopsie, because literally hours later, the New York Times headline read, Women and children killed in major battle. President wires congratulations to the troops. Teddy. Come on, man, this is why you get the whole story before you comment. The mass killing at Budaho sparked an outcry in the American press. The Anti-Imperialist League, which had lost a lot of steam since 1902, came back for its last hurrah, denouncing the bloodshed in the crater. And no one could deny this. There were photographs, there was evidence, there was absolute proof. But once again, Americans ignored it. They looked away. They didn't want to hear about the Philippines anymore. That was old news. 
Within days, Bud Daho was shoved out of the headlines by the San Francisco earthquake of 1906, and once again, Americans swept the nasty parts of the war under the rug. The reality was ignored, the image upheld. And no one was more bitter than Mark Twain. He wrote another witheringly sarcastic essay called Comments on the Moro Massacre. The enemy numbered 600, including women and children, and we abolished them utterly, leaving not even a baby alive to cry for its dead mother. This is incomparably the greatest victory that was ever achieved by the Christian soldiers of the United States. We cleaned up our four days' work and made it complete by butchering those helpless people. Mark Twain condemned his fellow Americans for their short attention spans, their lack of morals, the hypocrisy of their so-called Christianity. But he was tired. He, like many of these later anti-war writings of Mark Twain, were never published during his lifetime because he knew that no one cared. He knew that no one gave a shit. Americans failed the mirror test again. If I don't look, it didn't happen, right? But there are symbols, reminders, if you know where to look. When I was at Fort Riley, Kansas, part of the 1st Infantry Division, I served for a while in 2016 as part of the 5-4 Cavalry Squadron. Whenever I entered the battalion building, I passed by the 4th Cavalry's coat of arms, which displays a green volcano overlaid with a red chris. This represents the glorious victory of Budaho, where the 4th Cavalry was part of the American force that blew the Moro village apart. One more unit I served with, one more reminder of the Philippine War. History hidden in plain sight. The Moro War continued for seven years after the Battle of Budaho. American troops in khaki continued to fight the Huramentados across the hills and jungles of the southern Philippines. And in 1909, John Pershing returned to finish the war he began. Pershing had been promoted from captain to brigadier general, ahead of literally hundreds of other officers, based on just his competence alone. And he oversaw the U.S. Army's final major actions in the Philippine Wars. From 1909 to 1913, Pershing defeated or defused the remnants of Moro resistance. Pershing was the polar opposite of Leonard Wood. He reformed the legal system to comply with Moro culture, accepted indentured servitude in place of slavery, like slavery, diet slavery, and allocated land for the building of new mosques, of all things. Basically, Pershing advanced American policies without being too hard-headed about it, and kept the Moros on his side by respecting their culture and traditions. Only a few incidents during his tenure required, required military intervention. There was a second battle at Bud Daho in 1911, which Pershing ended with a negotiated surrender, not a massacre. Out of 800 Moros, only 11 were killed, and the rest came down and laid down their arms. See, this is what Leonard Wood could have done in 1906, but didn't have the time for. But in 1913, one last group of Moros retreated into the mountains of Holo Island and refused to surrender. Pershing tried to persuade them to come down, but finally had no choice but to assault Datu Amil's position on Bud Bagsak. From June 11th to 15, 1913, the Americans overwhelmed the last Moro stronghold. The fighting was bloody and fierce, but Pershing's careful tactics minimized his own casualties, uh, but there were some civilian losses. Civilians did perish on Bud Bagsak, but nowhere near what happened at Bud Daho. Either way, this, finally was the last major combat action in the American conquest of the Philippines.
The Moro War had lasted through three presidential administrations, from Roosevelt to Taft to Woodrow Wilson, but it was finally over. After 11 years of conflict from April 1902 to June 1913, the Moro provinces had been pacified, one year before the death of Archduke Ferdinand and the outbreak of the First World War. The Philippine Wars, all of them, were finally at an end. And out the other side came a totally different American military. The final assault on Bud Bogsok had no blue uniforms, no black powder rifles or ancient field guns or Civil War veterans leading the charge. Now the Americans were in khaki, wielding Springfield rifles, M1911 pistols, light machine guns, led by the future gener- generals of World War I. In four years, General Pershing would lead American troops into the trenches of the Western Front. The United States had become a world power, an empire, and it had an imperial army. The Philippine Wars had forged the American military of the future. But the Philippine War affected America in deeper, darker ways that still reverberate today. The Philippine Wars are over. It's time for our epilogue, where we tackle the consequences of America's forgotten war. The Philippine-American and Moro Wars together remain America's second longest conflict after Afghanistan. Official numbers of American dead add up to 4,196 during the Philippine War and over 600 in the Moro War. Although most of these were from disease, that still adds up to around 4,800 Americans who died to conquer the Philippines. The Philippine War was costlier than either the Iraq or Afghanistan wars, and over twice as deadly as the Spanish-American War it followed. For the Philippines, the war was a disaster. Around 16,000 Filipino combatants died, but then there are the civilian losses, which we will never know for sure and can only estimate. On the low end, around 250,000. The high end, maybe a million. Possibly one-tenth of all Filipinos. America did not cause most of these deaths directly, but indirectly. Crop destruction caused starvation. Concentration camps made disease more deadly. And the burning left people homeless and exposed. All these things combined together meant just malnutrition sets in. People are more susceptible to disease. More people die. They might not have been shot in reprisals or blown up by artillery at Budaho, but they were still casualties of war. Low end 250k, high end a million. And for all that, after the war was over, America was a relatively gentle overlord. Relatively. For the time. You don't want to be imperialized at all, but if it's a choice between Leopold II or Queen Victoria or Kaiser Wilhelm or Teddy Roosevelt, you want Teddy. Now, I am not an imperial apologist, I think I've made that pretty clear. But there were positive aspects of American rule. We'd be lying to ourselves just in a different way if we didn't mention them. First, American rule 
brought improvements in public health and sanitation, which transformed the cities and the countryside, reducing the mortality rate and generally improving the standard of living. Most Filipino villages and cities now had like functioning sewage systems for the first time. American military power stamped out internal conflict, piracy, and slavery, which had oppressed or killed Filipinos for centuries. The Philippine economy boomed, and compared to other empires of the day, it remained mostly in the hands of Filipinos. Compared to stuff like the Belgian Congo or French Indochina or British India, Filipinos continued to run most Filipino businesses. American business leaders were downright upset at how the colonial government protected the Filipinos from exploitation. Americans introduced public education, which was previously non-existent and for both boys and girls. Finally, they fulfilled one of the main goals of the Philippine Revolution. They disestablished the hegemony of the Catholic Church, redistributing its lands to Filipinos. A lot of these positive things did still have imperialist undertones. American trade policies forced the Philippine economy down lines that benefited the United States, which is why the two countries still have such a strong trade relationship today, because the Philippine economy was basically designed to work in tandem with the United States economy. Much of the wealth in the church land went to the Filipino elite, the bedrock of the American empire. The new education system was almost entirely in English, making that language the lingua franca of the islands, the only common language the Philippines spoke. But by giving the islands a common language, a common law, and prosperity that allowed the creation of a literate middle class, the United States accidentally fostered a common Filipino identity. Before and during the Philippine-American War, Filipino nationalism had been a fringe movement, but the experience of revolution and war gave Filipinos a common narrative, a national mythos, a collective struggle they saw as a unifying cause. Ironically, American conquest and empire sowed the soil that allowed Filipino nationalism to take seed and bloom. The Americans imposed artificial uniformity on the natural Filipino diversity, creating a unity that had not existed before, more effectively than Aguinaldo and his government ever could have achieved. And despite everything Americans said about Filipinos not being able to govern themselves, within a couple of decades the Filipinos were mostly governing themselves. By 1907, they were electing their own state governors in the lower house of their legislature, the Philippine Assembly. The state governors in the Philippine Assembly included guys like Vicente Lucban or Juan Calles. Uh, some of the biggest guerrilla leaders were now part of the Philippine government under the Americans. And the, Assemb the Philippine Assembly's two leaders were Sergio Osmeña and Manuel Quezon, a pair of young politicians who had both served on Aguinaldo's staff during the Philippine-American War as like couriers and administrators and messengers. And these guys hadn't given up their dream of an independent republic. The assembly passed yearly resolutions asserting the Filipinos' desire for independence. As Manuel Quezon was fond of saying, I would rather have a government run like hell by Filipinos than a government run like heaven by Americans. And that is a pretty common anti-imperialist impulse, isn't it? You know, my government might suck, but at least it's my government and not someone else's. If we see that differently, we're like, oh, how can how can you say that? What about your people? Isn't that kind of what the Americans said to the British in 1776? Rather have a government run like hell by Americans than run like heaven by the British. And Osmania and Quezon and their faction, they won. 
The Jones Act of 1916 gave the Philippines an elected upper house, the Philippine Senate, and officially committed the United States to Philippine independence, sooner rather than later. It was a remarkable turnaround from 1898. Almost as soon as the United States conquered the Philippines, it was preparing to let them go. Because Americans had lost the empire bug. 1898 to 1902 was that very brief period in which Americans saw empire as a grand adventure, an obligation, a holy mission. But after 1902, there is this shift in American public discourse. The word empire vanishes. America talks about its territories, its possessions, but never its colonies or its empire. Empire's out of style. Gee, I wonder what happened around 1902 to sour America on the idea of empire. America's confrontation with the reality of empire had spoiled the image for good. So America gave up on the dream of empire. Like when you eat too much of something, make yourself sick, and you never want to eat it again. There would still be soft imperialism, wars for business interests in the Caribbean, or crusades against communism in Vietnam, or against terrorism in Iraq and Afghanistan, but the American impulse for territorial expansion ended with the Philippines. It didn't hurt that the Philippines were turning out to be a burden, not an asset. This is the hidden truth of most colonial empires, French, German, even British. By the early 20th century, the costs of running the empire outweighed the benefits. The empire's financial and resource requirements outstripped the benefits. Empire was expensive, a drain, an albatross around the necks of the Western powers. But the Philippines were a burden in another way. They had become a defensive, strategic liability. The United States discovered, just as the Spanish had in 1898, that the islands were impossible to defend against a country with naval superiority. Like, the Philippines are thousands of miles across the Pacific from America. They have to send troops over there. They have to send ships over there to defend them against attack. And that is such a huge drain in American resources that had never existed before. Teddy Roosevelt, naval historian that he was, foresaw that the Philippines placed America in the crosshairs of other world empires, including another up-and-coming world power, the Japanese Empire. Roosevelt wrote to Taft, The Philippines form our heel of Achilles. They are all that makes the present situation with Japan dangerous. Personally, I should be glad to see the islands made independent. So the Philippines were costly, they were vulnerable, and they were an embarrassment to a country that wanted to leave empire behind and pretend the war to conquer it had never happened. So eventual Philippine independence became America's new policy. In 1935, the United States approved a constitution for a semi-independent Commonwealth of the Philippines whose first president would be Manuel Quezon. America planned to grant the Philippines their independence in the space of 10 years, but this timetable was disrupted because Teddy Roosevelt's premonition came true. And the Second World War came. In 1941, weeks after the attack on Pearl Harbor, Japanese forces landed in the Philippines. General Douglas MacArthur, Arthur MacArthur's son, led Philippine and American forces in the defense of the islands, including the battle on the Bataan Peninsula. Before Teddy's younger cousin, President Franklin D. Roosevelt, ordered him to evacuate, along with President Quezon. Behind them, Americans and Filipino prisoners of war died in the Bataan Death March, 
but many others escaped into the jungle, like I said, both Americans and Filipinos, vowing to fight on together. And the Philippines' last great war of insurgency began, this time against the Japanese. And let me get, let me get this very clear. I've been spent four episodes talking about how bad America was in the Philippines. Japanese were much worse. The Japanese saw America's war crimes and said, you were a little baby. Watch this. What Japanese, what Japan did in the Philippines made the water cure look like kindergarten. For four long years, Filipinos took up the banner of guerrilla war. But this time, the Americans fought beside them and assisted them. And this time, they won. The Japanese learned to fear the Bolo and the Chris. And in 1944-1945, General MacArthur returned to liberate the islands his father had conquered almost half a century earlier. The toll to the Philippines was enormous, almost a million dead and most of Manila destroyed in the final battle against Japan. But the America had returned, and the Filipinos never forgot it. And America kept its promise. On July 4, 1946, 44 years after Teddy Roosevelt declared the Philippine War over, the Philippine Republic declared independence. And in the ceremonial parade was the 76-year-old Emilio Aguinaldo holding the original Philippine flag that he had raised over Cavite in 1898, the flag sewn by Doña and Lorenza Agoncillo and Delfina de Navidad, the three Betsy Rosses of the Philippine history. The Philippines were free. But despite independence, the Philippines remained closely bound to the United States. They retain a close military alliance and strong trade relationship with their former conqueror. English remains the Philippines' most commonly spoken language. American food, media, and sports are a prominent force in Filipino culture. But the Filipinos don't seem to mind, at least not most of them. In 2015, 92% of Filipinos viewed the United States favorably. 92%? That, that's no one else. 92%, 9 in every 10 Filipinos adores, likes the United States. To this day, the Philippines remain one of the most pro-American countries in the world. No former subject adores its former imperial power to the degree that Filipinos admire America. Isn't this wild? Considering the water cure and Samar and Budaho, you might even think that maybe the Filipinos are wrong or misguided for feeling this way. But be careful. Telling people what they should think, what they should feel based on what we believe, well, we all know where that leads. The Philippine Revolution and Philippine-American War are the Filipino national mythos. Just as important in their history as put together the American Revolution and the American Civil War are in ours. The battlefields, the stories, the legends, the poems, most of their heroes and heroines. And the greatest hero of all remains Jose Rizal the sacrificial martyr executed by the Spanish during the Revolution. Unlike so many other figures of the Philippine Revolution and Philippine Wars, he died a hero rather than live long enough to become a villain. The legacies of Emilio Aguinaldo, Andres Bonifacio, Antonio Luna, those guys are much more complicated. Because Jose Rizal died early enough to become the Filipino image. But those guys are the reality, and their stories are less uniformly admirable, let's say. Because despite the triumphs of their history, the Philippines have not yet managed to conquer the divisions within their country, 
divisions that were in many ways amplified by American rule. America's backing of the Filipino upper class calcified the Philippine social order, with Tagalog elites at the top and the lower classes below them. This results in many lower class uprisings throughout the 20th century, including the, uh, the Hook movement in the 1940s and 50s, which was a communist movement. And even Douglas MacArthur later said that, you know, the Hooks kind of had a point. As a result, wealth inequality in the Philippines today is very close to that of the United States. One of the main issues in modern Philippine politics is the Tagalog domination of government, society, and culture, which was also reinforced by the American Empire. Because to win the Philippine War, America backed the Tagalog elite, and those guys just stayed in power forever. See also the struggle over language. The modern language that we call Filipino is actually a simplified version of Tagalog, which many ethnic minorities see as an attempt to suppress their national diversity. The English versus Filipino versus local language dispute still simmers across the Philippines, and many ethnic minorities will use English in refutation of Filipino as a way of asserting their own identity by taking the language of the colonizer against the dominant majority, dominant minority population. So do we sacrifice diversity for uniformity? And which uniformity? But the biggest divide remains between the majority Catholic Filipinos in the minority Muslim Moros. The Philippine Republic has fought numerous wars to subdue Moro land, and the Moros continue to agitate for independence well into the 21st century. A Muslim resistance movement continues to, the Phil to this day in the Philippines under the Moro Islamic Liberation Front, which, yes, is abbreviated MILF. Not a joke. These MILFs are much less fun than other kinds of MILFs. They tend to align themselves with folks like Al-Qaeda. When American special forces and Philippine army units started hunting modern Islamic terrorists in the jungles of Moroland, local graffiti and protests made explicit comparisons to Buddaho when American and Philippine army units assaulted the, the Muslim Moro village. And when I say this war is still ongoing, I mean it. In 2017, Islamic State-aligned Moro separatists launched an uprising in the Mindanao city of Marawi, resulting in a five-month siege on the shores of Lake Lanao, where they killed 1,000 people, not too far from where Captain Pershing led his expeditions. The spirit of the Huramentado is still very alive in the southern Philippines, where after five centuries, the Moros refused to be conquered. If we want to see how modern Filipinos remember the Philippine War, one way is to look at modern cinema. In 2015, the big-budget historical drama General Luna took the Philippine box office by storm. General Luna is a biopic of Antonio Luna, the hot-headed general who tried to stop the Americans in 1899. And this movie is pretty good. You can find the whole thing on YouTube. One of the only decent visualizations you're probably ever going to get of the Philippine War. But what's interesting to me about this movie is that Americans aren't the bad guys. Not really. Yeah, they're the greater threat, but the real drama of General Luna focuses on the struggle between the Filipinos, between Luna and Aguinaldo, between Mabini and the conservatives, between the hardliners and the compromisers. Jose Rizal even makes a flashback appearance, trying to remind the Filipinos that united they will stand, divided they will fall. The 2015 version of General Luna says something that sums up Philippine history. Brothers, we have an enemy bigger than the Americans. 
ourselves. American imperialism left its scars, for sure, but the Filipino defeat in the war still lingers as a bitter legacy of the island's division, its natural diversity forever in conflict with its artificial unity. Just as in 1899, the divisions within the Philippines remain their greatest challenge today. As Jose Rizal said in one of his poems, To foretell the destiny of a nation, it is necessary to open the book that tells of her past. This is the point of General Luna in the message it sent to Filipinos. We have to learn from the mistakes of our past if we don't want them to define our destiny. Which brings us to America. If the Philippine War is a touchstone of a Filipino memory, it is utterly absent from American memory. There were a handful of movies, yeah, but no one ever saw them. There are books, but no one reads them. There are statues and monuments, but they lie neglected. There are place names and symbols whose origins are forgotten, heroes and villains that vanish in the mist. Apart from a few military historians and cultural scholars, the Philippine War is absent from the historical narrative. It is America's forgotten war. But forgetting doesn't save you from the scars. Failing the mirror test doesn't avoid the pain. It just means you don't recognize how it changed you. There's a phrase I mentioned in the intro, which I'm going to bring back here. That which your government does unto others, it will also do unto you. In the course of conquering the Philippines, the American government learned how to do some very nasty things, and it brought those things home. This phenomenon, where the techniques imperial powers use on their colonies end up being turned on their own people, has a name. French philosopher and historian Michel Foucault called it the Imperial Boomerang. The armies Rome used to conquer its empire eventually conquered Rome. British tactics used in the Boer War, Kenya, and Malaya resurfaced in Ireland. French police used crowd control tactics from Algeria on the streets of Paris. And you guys ever heard of the Patriot Act? Remember when the US government got permission to conduct surveillance and violate civil liberties in order to fight terrorism and surprise, surprise, they used it on Americans. Multiple studies have also linked America's militarization of the police forces post 9-11 in the drug war with the war on terror. The violence does not stay overseas. It comes home. The imperial boomerang. That which your government does unto others, it will also do unto you. Only a few years after the Philippine War, there are reports of police departments across America using the water cure. The U.S. Army, led by Philippine War veterans, used counterinsurgency tactics on striking coal miners in West Virginia. The U.S. government used propaganda and pacification policies and surveillance against labor unions and leftists and African Americans. The national emergency of the First World War allowed for the suppression of free speech and dissent, the mass arrest of so-called troublemakers, all tactics invented or perfected in the Philippine War, which were now being used against Americans, the Imperial Boomerang. Back in Part 3, I mentioned an American officer named Ralph Van Damon, who had developed American military intelligence to stamp out rebellion during the Philippine War. And as head of the U.S. Army's military intelligence section, Von Damen oversaw the U.S. government's authoritarian activities during World War I, including one of the worst periods for free speech in American history, when you could get arrested for even protesting the war. 
He assembled a massive anti-communist network that helped form the future FBI and CIA. He kept comprehensive records that formed the basis for America's Red Scare and Hollywood blacklists, including the activities of one Joseph McCarthy. Von Damon was one of the founders of the modern American surveillance state, using methods he had invented and perfected in Manila to defeat the Philippine insurgency. To put it bluntly, guys, by committing themselves to conquering the Philippines, Americans gave their government this power. Empire overseas became empire at home. The U.S. government had learned how to be authoritarian. If you don't want your government to be evil, don't send them overseas to do things that will make them evil. This is always the danger of giving away freedom, even the freedom of other foreign people, in the name of security. If you say, oh, they're only being authoritarian to those people, not to me, yeah, not yet. That which your government does unto others, it will also do unto you. America corrupted itself in order to win the Philippine War, without even recognizing that the poison lingered in its veins for decades to come. African-American leader W.E.B. Du Bois said it best. The price of repression is greater than the cost of liberty. The degradation of men costs something both to the degraded and those who degrade. War doesn't usually make people or countries better. It usually makes them worse. But there was at least one guy in America who, even after everything that had gone down, still believed that war was awesome. Theodore Roosevelt had one of the most successful presidencies in American history. Whatever his views on war and empire, Roosevelt's sense of justice led him to tout what he called the square deal, progressive policies designed to benefit the common man. He was a whirlwind of energy, fighting the big corporations, passing food and drug laws to benefit public health, regulating the railroads, passing labor laws, founding national parks and forests. He even won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1906 for negotiating the end to the Russo-Japanese War. Freaking war is awesome Teddy Roosevelt won the Nobel Peace Prize. They'll just give it to anybody, I guess. When Teddy broke with the Republicans to run third party in 1912, incidentally breaking his relationship with his long-term friend William Howard Taft, his new progressive party had one of the most radical platforms in American history, including all these things we find so admirable, like public health care, minimum wage, workers' rights, workers' comp, campaign spending reform, he wanted to get rid of lobbying, and <gasps> women's suffrage. Yeah, Teddy lost, but still... <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt remains one of America's greatest leaders, one of America's greatest figures, with all these wonderful qualities that we can admire. The personification of the American image. But, like the rest of his country, Teddy put the Philippine War in his rearview mirror. He never set foot in the Philippines, not once in his life. And despite his borderline obsession with the war while it was going on, despite how central he's been to this story, Teddy only mentioned the islands nine times in his autobiography, with not one mention of the war crime scandal of 1902. Like America, Teddy wanted to forget. Teddy wanted to believe in the American image, even if it meant ignoring reality. So Teddy never stopped seeing war as awesome, glorious, romantic, a great achievement, a test of courage and manliness, a great adventure. When World War I broke out, he castigated Woodrow Wilson as a coward for refusing to get involved from the get-go. War was awesome, and this was a righteous, noble war. How could he keep America out? And when America did join in 1917, 
Teddy was proud as a lion when all four of his sons volunteered to fight the Central Powers. He cheered them on from the sidelines. His son Quentin, the baby of the family at 20 years old, became a pilot with the new U.S. Army Air Corps. When Teddy learned that Quentin had shot down his first German plane, the old man bubbled over with praise. What a glorious noble act. My son is the best. War is awesome. Heck yeah! And then it happened. On July 14, 1918, Teddy Roosevelt learned that Quentin had been shot down behind German lines. Three days later, the Germans confirmed that they had buried the brave young pilot with full honors. Quentin Roosevelt remains the only son of a U.S. president killed in combat. What made it even worse was that his last few letters continued to arrive, even after his parents knew of his death. It is hard to open the letters coming from those you love who are dead. But Quentin's last letters, written during his three weeks at the front, are written with real joy in the great adventure. He had his crowded hour. He died at the crest of life, in the glory of the dawn. But these words concealed an unimaginable grief. Quentin's death shattered Theodore Roosevelt. It ruined him. It turned everything dark. He lost joy in reading, in hunting, in exercise, in anything. He stared into space for hours, barely moving. His bodyguard recalled that the old man would sit alone or lie in bed, whispering his son's name to the darkness. His health declined, his body failed. He lost what spark was left. Less than six months later, on January 6, 1919, Theodore Roosevelt died in his sleep at a relatively young age 60. All his biographers basically agree that the shock of Quentin's death, to one degree or another, was what killed Theodore Roosevelt. Teddy had spent his life believing in a heroic, romantic image of war. But suddenly, war no longer seemed so glorious at all. War had consequences personal ones. There was no more romance left. It was all blood and horror and misery and grief, and it always had been. In the last days of his life, Theodore Roosevelt finally understood the reality of war. The image was gone, and all it took was his own personal descent into a howling wilderness. So what does it all mean, James? What's the point? Why should I care? Well, guys, it's been a long story. And a bit longer than I expected, just from scheduling, moving issues, all that stuff we talked about. But now we have to ask ourselves, what does the Philippine War mean? And to answer this question, I'm going to restate the three questions I laid out in the intro to the Philippine War. The three questions I wanted to answer with this series. Number one, why did America get involved in the Philippines? Number two, why did we win? And number three, why did we forget? America ended up in the Philippines almost by accident as a byproduct of the Spanish-American War. But in that age of rampant patriotism and pumped-up jingoism, war fever and victory and a sudden rise to global power, Americans lost sight of reality. 
Not for the last time in our history, we allowed an exaggerated sense of our power, our righteousness, and our ideals to lead us into a conflict to force those ideals on someone else. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. But in order to win the Philippine-American War, the United States had to shed those good intentions, sacrifice those ideals, become something unrecognizable. Benevolent assimilation turned into kill and burn. Civilization and progress turned into the water cure. And a war we supposedly launched for the Filipinos' own good turned into a howling wilderness. We ended up using Spanish torture and Spanish concentration camp tactics that we had formerly decried to win our Philippine War. Whatever the result of American empire in the Philippines was, it's really hard to justify Batangas, Samar, or Budaho as somehow necessary to get there. So that brings us to the question that haunts this series. Why these soldiers are unknown soldiers at all? Why did America forget? Why does American history gloss over, ignore, just brush aside the Philippine War? And as I've pointed out throughout this series, it's not like there aren't symbols or signs or indicators of the war. It hasn't been brushed away from the monuments. All throughout my military career, from my first days as a cadet of Virginia Tech to some of my last days on active duty, they've been right in front of me. The Cenotaph at Virginia Tech, bearing the names of two brothers, two Medal of Honor recipients who fought in the Philippine War, one of whom is a convicted war criminal. My first unit in the Army, which was massacred at Balanhiga. My unit at Fort Riley, whose military crest celebrates the slaughter at Budajo, where part of the fort is named after the man who captured Emilio Aguinaldo. The six years I spent near Savannah, Georgia, where a hiker statue in the largest park in the city commemorates the soldiers of the Philippine War. And a few months ago, I met a young Moro woman who remembered what the U.S. Army, whose uniform she wore, had done to her people. A final reminder for anyone who was watching. Ever since the Battle of Balanquiga in 1901, the U.S. Army held the Balanquiga Bells as war trophies. One of them was held by the 9th Infantry Regiment on Camp Red Cloud in South Korea, where I saw it in person in 2013, and two more bells at Francis E. Warren Air Force Base in Wyoming. Long story. The bells were the subject of intense lobbying by the Philippine government, asking for their return, while the U.S. government insisted that they were valid trophies of war. But under the orders of Secretary of Defense James Mattis, America finally returned the Balanquiga Bells in 2018. Filipinos were ecstatic. Like, they tracked the flights carrying the bells in real time to the airports. Thousands of inhabitants of Samar came out to cheer their progress back to the town, where they rang in the church tower for the first time in 117 years. The last time they rang in 1901, it was a call to war, a call to slaughter. Now it was a call for reconciliation and remembrance, but only one side remembers. This was all in plain sight. America forgot on purpose. Why? What I think. Americans have always believed that we are special. That we're the good guys. Noble. Idealistic. The city on the shining hill. Emanating liberty and democracy and freedom to the world. But the Philippine War was none of those things. Not even remotely. It was so contrary to the American image that we couldn't handle it. We couldn't even find a good way to sugarcoat it like we do with so much of our history. So Americans lied to themselves. We forgot because we couldn't handle the truth. Because the truth is that America isn't special. We never have been. 
We are just the same as everyone else. Our constitution, our liberties, and our freedoms, however unique, do not make us better people. Our failure to understand that is what leads us down the path of darkness time and again. We are just as capable of being cruel and ruthless as wicked as anyone else on earth, as the British, the Germans, the Russians, anyone. Being special isn't about who you are. It's about what you do. And like I've said, the point of this story is not America bad. I've already described how America's colonial regime in the Philippines was relatively mild by the standards of the day. And guys, the American achievement, its history and culture, are brilliant. Massive. I truly believe that. The Constitution and the Bill of Rights are a towering triumph. Are are one of the oldest democracies in the world, one of the most free countries in the world, the end of slavery in the Civil War, victory in World War II in the Cold War, our prosperity and creativity and ingenuity, our wonderful blending of culture, our endless striving towards a better tomorrow, our dream of liberty for the oppressed and democracy for all, and the very real strides we have made. All of this ranks among the greatest civilizations on Earth. I couldn't have worn the U.S. Army uniform these last 10 years if I didn't believe that. But when it comes to facing our past, we have a long way to go. America can't seem to pass the mirror test. Our ideals are too unattainable. Our image of ourselves is too perfect for us to face the reality. We keep looking away and this hurts us. This keeps tripping us up. Because just like what happened to Theodore Roosevelt, reality will catch up. Reality bursts through the image eventually. Holding on to a treasured image for too long, clinging to a false reality, will destroy us. It destroyed Spain. It destroyed Aguinaldo's Republic. It's destroying Russia as we speak. And the reality of what America did in the Philippines still hasn't really caught up. Some people might even be downright upset that I talked about this war, talked about these things America did. If this was uncomfortable for you to hear at any point, if you're upset I talked about this at any point, it was probably necessary that you hear it. The poison seeps in whether we want to acknowledge it or not. After all, that which we did to the Filipinos, our government eventually did, and still does, to us. So much of the darkness of our present is rooted in the darkness of our past. We have to treat the disease if we want to cure the symptoms. To get to that shining, beautiful image of the United States, we have to face reality. If America wants to be the America of our glorious vision, and I know we can be, We have to look at our history and look at it honestly. We have to confront our past. We have to pass the mirror test. For that reason, if for no other, the dead of Tirad Pass and Mabitak, the dead of Batangas and Budaho, and the dead of Balanquiga and Samar must not remain unknown soldiers. Thanks for listening today, and thank you for coming with me on this journey to America's imperial age. I'm glad you've been able to stick with me through my schedule delays, but now I'm up here in the wintry north of Wisconsin. I'm getting back to work. Future episodes will be less depressing, at least for a while, but it is military history, and as I never fail to remind you, it gets dark and it gets bloody. But if you like what you've heard today, tell your friends. Continue to pass the tapes. If you don't, tell your enemies. If you don't have any, go make some. Life's too short. My sources are on my website. Don't forget to check out my book recommendations. You know the drill. 
Okay, so I have some short rounds coming down the pipeline, some post-series supplementals, but we'll see when I'm done with those, hopefully by next week. The first will be about the modernization of the U.S. Army, 1899-1914, under Secretary of War Elihu Root and General Leonard Wood. The second will be an extended musing about the MacArthur family, Arthur and Douglas, father and son, in their place in American history, so look out for those next week. And after that, I'll be taking a couple weeks off to recharge my batteries from the move, settle in, enjoy the holidays, and work up some new material. But I won't be gone long. Couple weeks off. Couple weeks off. I need them. (laughs) We have so many more places to go. See you again on January 16th, 2023, because we're going to Africa. With the resumption of season two will be with episode 41, The Kaiser's Lion. January 16th, 2023, right here on Unknown Soldiers.